Amen. All right, we're working. If you would, open up your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. Find your way to verse 25. Men, we, we knew this day was coming. We've had a couple weeks to prepare for it, to buckle our chin straps. And now we will let the word of God speak. Whenever we came to this passage a couple weeks ago, we looked at uh, the glory of submission. And we, we dispelled some of the, the myths that our woke society has tried to build around the biblical meaning of submission and that role for godly wives. They are called to submit to their husbands. The scriptures say, as to the Lord as he is their head, for Christ is the head of the church. And submission does not indicate oppression. It does not indicate value, and it is not a mutual submission. So that common misconception has to be put to death. And where the attack of the uh, woke culture society, I believe, is taking place against marriage in form of its attack against men is with the redefining of love, of what that means. I believe Satan continues to um, attack the church by attacking marriage and using society to do that by attacking the biblical language the definition of words, especially in the realm of, of marriage. The, uh, the modern social justice movement has been attempting to redefine a myriad of words, um, but submission and love seem to be at the front of that, of that attack. And by this redefining of love, it's causing husbands to fail drastically in their headship to their wives. The trick is, um, which has always been the trick of the enemy, is to make that husbands and wives believe they are doing what the Bible says without them actually doing what the Bible says. A, A form of the thing, but not the real function of the thing. It's literally the the oldest trick in the book and the longest ongoing point of attack. So today we want to counterattack that and strike back by biblically defining our roles as as husbands, as we've done with wives, redefining or rebuilding the, the true definition of how we are called to love our wives and so before we do that, uh, let's pray, and then we'll begin uh, working through our text and working through, I think, a, a beautiful passage of what love is, of how Christ loves us, and how husbands should love our wives. Let's, let's, let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are that we have been loved, as we have just saying it was not of us, we were not lovely, 
You set your love on us. You chose to love us even while we were still sinners. And even then, dying for us to secure us to yourself. Lord, we have ran roughshod over love. What it should be, what you have designed it to be. And it is something that can only be known, received, and given rightly through you. So God, my first prayer is that if there is one here who thinks they love, yet they do not know Christ, that they would be corrected by your spirit to know Christ and to know love through him. That they would be raised today from spiritual deadness to life by your grace, set free from sin to love as you've called them to love. God, help our men. Help those future men who will take a bride. Help those of us now who have brides that we are responsible for that have belonged to you way before they belong to us. Let us cherish them and nourish them as we should. God, speak to us today through your word. Help us, Lord, for we are weak. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me read our, our text to us. And I'm going to go ahead and start with, with 22 just to, to bring that into context. And I'm only going to go through verse 30 today. There's, there's a lot more that could be said on those last two verses that I don't think I have time for just in one, in one setting. This is the word of the Lord. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Well, let's look first at the first two verses there, 25 through 27. And look um, at this Christ-like love defined here by the word of God. And first I'll point out it seems almost unfitting that since Paul has just told um, wives to submit to their husbands that he would then turn and say, husbands, lead, lead your wives. You, you lead them as they follow you, but he doesn't say that. He says, husbands, love your wives. And before I get to that and sort of exegete the white space, we'll exegete what's been printed in black. Turning to husbands to love your own wives, he then qualifies that statement by saying, first, as Christ loved the church, then he tells what that love is for, for her sanctification, and then the final aim of that love, which would be her holiness before God, her blamelessness. 
And even with just that, that tiny bit of inspired information from the Word of God, the, the, the mythical uh, Greco-Roman love that dominates our culture, that's portrayed in movies and is often used as a, as a permission slip to commit even the most vile of sins against our own bodies, is, it's destroyed. Nothing in this passage at all for how man should love a woman And I will just point out this week that at the end of this passage, Paul grounds marriage and creation, and then he makes the point in verse 33 that every individual among you also is to love his wife in this way. So it's not, this is not just a church thing. This is a world thing. God has instituted marriage, and every individual who joins into the covenant of marriage has a responsibility to love his wife in a certain way, and he will be held responsible for that. So, we will continue. The lie that we are being sold, hook, line, and, and, and sinker, is that our, our love for our wives, or the love of a man for a woman is, is emotional, and it's, it's equated more with, with niceness and, and permissiveness than anything that, that, that we would ever do, man or woman, in the name of love cannot be wrong because of our mantra, love, love wins. I can do what I want because love wins, and if you stop me from doing what I want in the name of love, then you're the enemy of love. And you're no Christian because God is love. And so forth and so on. But because God is love, he, he defines what love is. And what form of love is appropriate then for us to, to give and to receive in the different spheres of life and the love between a husband and a wife is not the, the sensual, over-romanticized lust that often parades as love. It is often nothing more than a perverted uh, desire of a wicked heart and sinful flesh. The Bible says, he who trusts in his heart is a fool. And the wrong view of love is not, it's not just necessarily destroying what the Bible teaches about uh, sexuality and the relationship between a man and a woman. That's the, that's the first act, I think, of Satan's drama. But the second act is he's destroying the, the family. There's an intent there to stop the original garden mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with worshipers of God. And one of the ways that is happening is by trying to manipulate the meaning of love. I want to peel back some of these false ideas for, for myths about that um, Cupid's arrow kind of love that we seem to accept. And a lot of this, by, by the way, there's a, a book that Vody Bauckham has written called Family Driven Faith that is phenomenal work. I think it should be in every, every home, but he speaks more into this, and some of this I'm just pulling directly from what he's written. But the first myth of love is that it's just some random force, that we don't, we don't choose whom we love. We don't choose whom we fall in love with, 
Um, often we'll hear it said, the heart wants what the heart wants. I was just standing around minding my own business and love just came and carried me away and told me what I had to do. The second is that love is an overwhelming force. And you'll hear oftentimes in uh, marriages where infidelity is, is taking place, something like, well, this, this thing was just bigger than me. It was bigger than both of us. We didn't, we didn't want this to happen. I wanted to stay faithful to my wife, but we, I just couldn't help it because it's just too big. Third myth is that love is an uncontrollable force. A little bit of a nuance here, but we hear this a lot. Um, just fell out of love. And you hear this in the saddest cases, marriages that have been together for, for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and the, you know, well, just one day we just realized we didn't, we didn't love each other anymore. My, my first response when I hear that is to say, if, if you think you've fallen out of love, then you never fell into love. You fell into lust. And when the lust was gone, the infatuation was gone, you realized then that you never did love. And myth number four is that love is a sensual force. And we see how backwards our society has, has become in this. You know, years, years ago, um, if a relationship was getting serious and you knew your, your friend was spending a lot of time with the same woman, you would, you would maybe ask, have you, have you popped the question yet? It seems like it's getting, it's getting serious. And now we, we would ask, have, have you slept together yet? Because that'll tell you if there's a spark. And then if there's a spark there, then, yeah, maybe there's something to the love you think you have for her. A love worth pursuing. But then if not, then you just keep moving down, down the line. And the, just there's more. But just from these four myths... This is what makes up the, the, the majority of our society's view of love. And, it, and it's been ripping through our families and our marriages. And it's leaving wakes of broken men and women and children behind it. And even our children now are buying into it. Hats off to Hollywood and Walt Disney for successfully training us to think that love is just some emotional, romantical infatuation that can't be controlled and has to be obeyed. And what this is, is victimology at its finest. We're, we're victims of love. We're not really those who actually are in control of who we love and how we love. And everybody today loves a victim. We shouldn't have to point some of these things out or even say them, but nothing in these myths represents what the Bible teaches about love. But yet, this is, this is the largest portion of how love is understood and spoken of in, in society. As if it's a romantical, fleeting, just feeling that controls. And the question I've had to ask myself is whose fault is that? 
And I would love to point the finger somewhere else. I would love to even say that it's a 50-50 split between men and women. And maybe that's true in some regard. But when I read this passage, I look and I see, whom did God make responsible for representing the love a man is to have for a woman before the culture? Who was given the biblical mandate to represent the love that Christ has for the church and the way he loves his wife? And I hate to admit it or say it, but it seems that the failure of love in our society is on the men in our society. Seems in a lot of ways we put the bullets in the enemy's gun and now we're surprised he's shooting at us because of the way we have failed to love women, to honor them, to cherish them, to nourish them as God's daughters. And ironically now, if there's anywhere that we see a feministic society gladly submitting and taking cues from men, it's in this submission to the definition of love that we've helped to create and our poor excuse of love. And I know I've heard men say things like, well, yes, chivalry's dead, but it's because women killed it. But remember, Christ came loving his bride unconditionally, knowing his bride would not and could not return the same love to him that he gave to her. It wasn't reciprocal. It was unconditional. He set his glory aside so that she might become glorified. He condescended to earth so that one day she could ascend to heaven. He became treated as sin so that she would be treated as righteous. He suffered the wrath of God that she deserved. He died so she could live. He rose again so that she could be justified. He did all of this that his bride would be holy and blameless before God. And he did it in a selfless, sacrificial way, considering her, his bride, as his own flesh. He, her head, she, his body. I think the first thing Paul is teaching us then with him, with his command, is that our love for our wives is not to be based on how well our wives love us or how well we want to be loved, but how well we have been loved by Christ. Our love can't rise and fall with how well our needs are met, with good days or bad days, with how well we've been loved. It's based on Christ and his love for the church, and there's no way we can possibly love anyone unless we know that love first for ourselves. Love, first and foremost, for our wives is a a response to God's love for us. We love because he first loved us. And Christ Jesus demonstrated this sacrifice of himself to secure us to God and provide us with a heart that could love him. So back now to Paul saying, love your wives, instead of saying, lead your wives. I believe he said this because just as the church's submission to Christ is based on Christ's sacrifice for her, So our wives will respond with submission to our headship when our love seeks not our own good, but the good of our beloved 
So submission is, is, is the response to the sacrifice. So if we are going to lead our wives, it's going to be in a sacrificial way. And the only way we're going to do this is if we return to, to this book and we learn the word of God, we learn the love of Christ for us so that we can love like him. And then we have to teach our sons this book so that they can love the same way and then teach our daughters not to accept any of the counterfeit love that society peddles around. That this is the love God has for them. This is the love they are to get from a husband. Do not accept a counterfeit. You wonder why women are, are fearful and, and against maybe submitting to, to, to men when you look around and we, we're just a bunch of grown boys with beards. Men without chests, as C.S. Lewis would put it. I think this verse is, is helpful here in, in framing our, our minds and our hearts to look at this text and look at our brides. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, humbled by the point of death, even death on a cross. He continually stepped down for her so she might be lifted up. Your wife will never know the love she's supposed to receive from you if we don't have a view of Christ's love for us. And the reason I think so many of our marriages struggle with this idea of, of the headship of the husband and the submission of the wife is because men don't understand the headship. And they think that headship means that everyone else is to make sacrifices for me because what I say goes and what I... What I want, I get. But men, no one in your home should be more willing to make sacrifices of themselves than you. If there's someone else in your home that is making greater sacrifices for you to get what you want, something's off. Marital headship is not, it's not getting what we want. It's making sure that first and foremost, our wife gets what she needs, that I'm loving her as Christ tells me to love her, and then looking to my own interests, what I want. And we can get real picky with this. Who gets the remote control? Who has to fill up the car this week? All that kind of stuff. But it's all rooted in I am, am, am for my wife. I am for her needs being met. And then when I see that she is loved and cherished in all the ways that I'm called to do that, then, then I can look and to my needs, my wants, my hobbies, my interests, so forth and so on. But the beauty of this, beauty of marriage by, by this example of sacrificial love, guess who learns that they don't have to, to do everything society says they should do and they don't have to have what everyone else has and learns how valuable they are just in their home to their husband. It's your wife. She becomes satisfied in her role and how much you value her because she knows her value because of not what you have given her maybe, but of what you have given up for her. She'll know she's loved above everything else in the world and that she doesn't need 
what society maybe would say she needs. She knows she has it all in the love that you are giving her. And then what does that cultivate? The submissive spirit that the church has for Christ and responding to his sacrifice creates a submission to your wife, a trust, a respect, a commitment to trusting your headship because she knows that every decision you make is not made first for you and what you want to do, but what is best for her and her best interests. And so submission and sacrifice, that's how they work together. As you love your wife and you sacrifice for her and you give yourself up for her, she's glad to submit to your headship because it's a godly headship. It's a Christ-like headship. Let's look at the, the verses 28 through 30. If we have an idea maybe now defined of sacrificial love, let's look at that displayed. So husbands also ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So Paul says this, this is a mystery, this union between Christ and the church, but it's the union that is pictured in our, in our marriages and the way we become one flesh, equal, one flesh, not, not, a, not a greater or a lesser. And that picture only comes into focus when we are both fulfilling our biblical roles here, submission and sacrifice. But we do this, we love our wives in this way, considering her as our very own body, just as she came out of the body of man, and just as the church is considered the body to whose head is Christ. And we get two very specific um, commands to nourish and cherish the body. That nourish, uh, the word for nourish there has to do with... um, not just a physical nourishment or a physical diet, but actually a, a rearing up or a bringing up, a sustaining. And it, has, it does have to do with the physical well-being, but also, and even more emphasized, I think, the spiritual nourishment that she receives. And then the word cherish has this sense of, of warming up, of warming up the affections with, with tenderness, and so it's, it's, it's a picture of how to love the whole person of your wife emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And we, man, we, we, get, we get this wrong. We, we work hard for our wives and we provide things for our wives and we think, man, we're just knocking it out of the park. But do you warm your wife's emotions? Do you you compliment her? Are you passionate with her? Are you romantic with her? If her countenance is low, do do you raise it? Do you labor to see her smile and hear her laugh? Does she know... Does she know that you love her, that your, your mind and your eyes and your hands and the members of your body are all reserved for her? 
Does she feel like she is the flesh of your flesh and bone of your bones? And then all the while, not neglecting to nourish her, sure, the physical provisions are there, but, but raising her up into spiritual maturity, sanctifying her with the word of truth and helping her to become more like Christ. That's, that's the goal. That's what the Bible says. Christ loved her and gave himself up for her that she would be sanctified, holy and blameless. And that also means too, which is, which is hard, a loving rebuke and a correction and a, and a reproof with the word of God. Not lording it over her, but with, with, with helping her to become blameless, to be sanctified in the same way that Christ continues to live and intercede for his bride, seeing to it she's sanctified. And I know often... I, Men will say, and I've said it before too, that, well, I just, that's, I love her and I care for her, but the, the, I don't know the Bible well enough to really, to really do that. I think that's, that's the, the pastor's job. That's what, that's what sermons are for. That's what Sunday's for. Paul is not talking to your pastor. He's talking to husbands. And how, how, how many of you, how many have spent your, your lives learning a craft or a trade? You, you've studied your brains out to become a, a professional in some field. You can diagnose and create solutions and fix problems with machinery and automobiles and animals and the land or logistics. Or you have a hobby of something you've just absolutely mastered because of how much you enjoy it. Your wife sees that. And when you've done that kind of thing in front of your wife, and then the Bible calls you to nurse her with the word of God, and you turn around and say, well, I can't do that. What, what are you saying? What are you communicating to her? I don't know how to search the scriptures to find out how, how, to, how to look at you and see what's wrong and see uh, maybe why you're sad or what you're angry about or what you're depressed over or what you're dealing with or struggling with. I don't know where to take you to God's word and nourish you with that. But you put a small engine in my hands and I can do anything you want with it because I've spent years and years and years learning how to do that. Well, baseline... You're saying that what God says is most important about the way you love your wife is not as important to you as those things. And as I say this, you're probably flexing. Don't tell me how I love my wife. I would die for my wife. Well, it's a lot harder to live for her than to die for her. And I know... Man, some of you are practically killing yourself six days a week to provide for your wife because you never want to tell her no and you want her to have everything and you want her to be happy. You want to, you want to give her the world. And that's great, but the end goal of marriage isn't just her happiness, it is her holiness. That she be sanctified, blameless before her father. 
If we, if we have our wives dressed in all the clothes that she loves and eating in all the places that she loves to eat, staying where she loves to stay, and yet she's not being sanctified or cherished, growing in Christ's likeness, even if she's happy with you, you are still failing her as a husband. Because the end goal is not to just make sure she's happy with you at the end of the day, but that she can stand before God more holy because she was married to you. We should be lifelong students of our wives. Able to look at her face and know what she's feeling. Know when she's angry. Know when she's sad. Know when she's lonely and burned out. And be able to, to offer a word of encouragement from the scripture. Honey, I see this in you and, I, and this is what the Bible says. Let me read that to you. We, we can drive down the road in our trucks and we can sense the slightest vibration and something's off. Hear the slightest noise that no one else in the vehicle can even hear, but you can hear it and you know it shouldn't be there. That should be nothing, nothing compared to how sensitive we are to the countenance of our bride. And I'll confess that, that knowing something is wrong and knowing exactly what is wrong is two different things. And wives, sometimes just, just give us some credit for noticing. When we recognize you're upset, instead of being mad that we don't know why, when your husband says, what's wrong, I can tell you're upset, your answer shouldn't be, oh, you don't know? You should know. We don't. <laughs> we don't. We, we are kind of getting this body language thing down, but we, we don't have your mind down. We can't get in there and read anything. And if we could, I don't know if we'd stay. <laughs> so let's just answer the question. Thank you for noticing. Let's, let's deal with it. Here's what you have done. This is why I'm mad at you. Husbands, we have to be rugged like our Christ. Passionate, sacrificial. Love hurts, but it's consistent and it doesn't change according to our, our feelings in a given situation. It's committed to her and her alone, no matter the cost, sickness and health, good and bad, rich or poor, until somebody dies or Jesus comes back. That's what we signed up for. The love that Christ has for his bride is, is a love that, that nourishes her, even now intercedes for her, praying for her, demonstrates kindness and encouragement, cherishes the, the beauty and the God-given design of her mind, her body, warms her affection, raises her countenance. It's a love that... that treats her as your, your very flesh, protecting her with your life as if she is your own body. When if we have a, an arm that's broken, we don't just go dangling it around like that's kind of the first order of business. My body's failing. It needs, it needs my attention. 
and she hurts, you should feel that pain. And if she's hurting physically, emotionally, spiritually, not, nothing else matters until she's well. It's a love that purifies her, investing in her with the word of God, reading, teaching, praying, placing her under the means of grace, yes, bringing her to church, worshiping with her. And it is a love that provides. Make sure that the, the provisions are, are there. Not that you're the, the, the highest breadwinner, per se, I was a part-time youth pastor and my wife owned her own salon. You can guess who brought home more bacon. But if that salon wasn't there, I've got to make sure I'm picking up another job or another job or another job or whatever to provide. But at the end of the day, the greatest provision you can, can give your wife is for her sanctification and for her holiness, her Christ-likeness. At the end of the day, will allow her to stand before God and say, because of the way my husband loved me, I'm more like Christ than I would have been without him. And if we're going to, to regain the the beauty of marriage and rebuild what we have lost, what we've given up to society, that means we've got to put away our pride, personal agendas, even hobbies, egos, childhood fantasies, whatever gets in the way and love our wives with a fierce passion that Christ has for his bride. And we can never forget that before she was our Wife, she was a daughter to the king. The king that we have to one day answer to. And the way we're going to do that is by spending more time on our knees and prayer and more time in the word than we do in other places and other things. Most of the battles we've lost weren't lost in the moment. They were lost in our lack of prayer before that moment came our lack of preparation before that moment came. I love being married. It's beautiful and it's so hard because I don't care who you are married to, they're a sinner. Your wife, bless her, she's a sinner. Your husband, bless him, he's a sinner. So despite what we see on Instagram, women, there are no perfect husbands. No perfect wives or no perfect families. You're not going to be perfectly submissive to your husband. And husband, you're not always going to be perfect in loving your wife. And that what we see there or the pressure there is meant to push us down together at the foot of the cross. There is a drastic amount of grace required for marriage on both sides for husbands and wives, and there's only one fountain from which that grace flows, and it's Jesus Christ. But when I as a husband or you as a husband are seeking first after Christ, and I'm seeking to, to, to love my wife, to get 
closer to Christ. When you are loving her, you are serving him. Don't miss that. And as a wife is doing the same thing, loving God by submitting to her husband, we're seeking Christ together, but we are, we are being drawn closer in that process. So we're going to love our husbands. We're going to love our wives best when we are seeking Christ first and being drawn together by him. And then you, you, you end up with this, this Christ-centered marriage where he truly is at the center of everything that you do. And regardless of where you are on the marriage scale, if you are in a marriage that's struggling, if you have come out of a marriage that has failed, and maybe you feel like you, you've blown it, you have not blown it with Christ. He is still the perfect Savior for everyone who repents from their sin, trust in the life, death, and resurrection of him alone. So don't hear guilt being heaped upon you for a marriage past. Grace is sufficient for that. And understand that whatever the struggle is in marriage, Christ is sufficient to 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 bring a goodness into that. And my one maybe point of application here is that when one of the ways that we don't help ourselves in our marriage is when something is wrong and we need to address something is we address the other person. My marriage would be good if, if my husband would just stop doing this or start doing that. Or my marriage would be good if my wife would just not do this one thing or start doing this other thing. When we, when we are in, in heaven and we're standing before God and we're given account for how we loved our spouses, he's not gonna ask how she loved you or how he loved you. He's gonna say, how well did you do with what I told you to do for her? How well did you do with what I told you to do for him? And we've got to be aware of, of that and so whenever we're wanting to improve in our marriage, improve on us, pray for the other person. Sure, love the other person, nurse the other person, all those things. But don't get caught up in trying to, to do their role. You, you do yours. You do what God has called you to do. And that is why it is so extremely important, especially young people, that you find a godly spouse that you're equally yoked. You're gonna have a hard time having a Christ-centered marriage if there's no one seeking Christ on the other side of you. So you, you have to, to look for that. Don't, don't settle for less than that. Don't fall victim to these lies of love. Well, I know they're not married, but I love them and I can't help it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And you should. And if you seek Christ first, you, you, you will. Don't settle. Don't dare settle. Because the way for marriage to, to function as it should and to, for the love and the joy and the sanctification and all those things to be there, it, it takes two people together seeking Christ. And if you do not know him, 
today, look to him. Look to Christ today. Look to his death on the cross as the death died for you and see that it was your sin that kept him there and see that the blood that he shed was for the covering of your sins and see his resurrection as your justification. Place your faith in that. Turn your life to him. He's worthy. He is worthy in all things for how he has loved us. For this is love, not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. How desperately we need it. Pray, God, you would strengthen us as men, as husbands, to love as how we are called to love, to make sacrifice, to seek you and your will first, to seek the best interests of our our wives and their walk with you, supporting it, helping it to grow, nourishing it, and cherishing her. Loving that woman you have given us with all we have. Help us, God, that we might turn this tide of failed marriages and broken families in our society to demonstrate what we should be demonstrating through our love, which is the perfect love and better union that you have with your church. So we might see you glorified on this earth as you are in heaven. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake.